From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. It's clear that the COVID pandemic has killed in a deeply unequal way. In the mid-1800s, German philosopher Friedrich Engels coined the term social murder after witnessing the appalling conditions in which the English working class lived. In a similar way, the COVID pandemic has shone a light on the concept of such social murder, and it's not a pleasant picture. This episode, we are joined by Bianca Nogrady, an acclaimed science writer and the author of the Medical Republic's COVID blog, to discuss how the social determinants of health have played out during this pandemic. Bianca Nogrady, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much. Nice to be here. So you've just filed a feature which really gave me goosebumps when I read it and the title was about social murder and I believe that actually came under some fire from some people that you interviewed. Yeah, so it's a controversial term. Um, It's... I wouldn't necessarily say it's under fire. It's just that it's a very um, it, it's a very specific reference to something that um, Friedrich Engels wrote back in the late 1800s, um, which is based on this idea that um, it's, he was describing the condition of um, working class people in England, the conditions in which they were essentially forced to live and work. And his argument was that, you know, society places these workers in these conditions, which, you know, are, they know will are damaging to their health, uh, are, I guess, uh, have an impact on their lifespan, a negative impact on their lifespan. Um, they know essentially that these can, working and living conditions will kill this, these the poor and the working class, and yet they do nothing to improve those conditions. And when I say they, it's generally referring to, I guess, the those in those in power. And so his argument was that the fact that these that society puts people in these conditions and uh, essentially forces them to remain in those conditions, knowing that they will end their lives prematurely, is essentially therefore an act of murder. It is premeditated, it is deliberate, and the end result is the early death of these individuals. Um, so it's, um, as you know, as, as sort of one person said, you know, this is a very, um, I guess, blunt instrument of a term, a hammer over the head, but it is certainly um, extremely relevant. And well, it's been relevant for a very, very long time, um, but perhaps even more so during a pandemic, which has very much highlighted the conditions that exist that already lead to the shortening of the lives of some sectors of society and in a pandemic uh, even more so. So really the pandemic further exploited that situation to increase death rates amongst certain groups in society. Yeah, so at the start of last year of 2020, we saw this virus, this novel coronavirus spreading rapidly across the world. And as countries began to see the severity and go into lockdown and introduce quite severe public health measures, there were still people going to work around the world. And we know that some people were overexposed compared to others, generally more wealthy, who were more underexposed to the virus. And it wasn't spread equally. Can you give us a peek of what that actually looked like for individuals in different countries? Yeah, absolutely. And look, it's interesting, you know, we use this term lockdown and there was so much coverage about lockdown and people saying, 
um, oh, you know, it sucks I'm stuck at home and I have to work from home. And, and obviously, you know, it had a huge emotional toll. But a lot of people working in the public health sector really kicked back against that term of lockdown because they pointed out there's large sections of society that were not allowed to remain at home. They were considered essential workers. They were forced to continue working, whether by economic pressures or by um, just simple requirements of their job. Um, and these groups are often not were not given protections that were afforded to other groups in society. So there's a couple of scenarios that, uh, you know, that are kind of, I guess, painted portraits of, you know, for example, um, in the meatpacking facilities and factories in, in the United States, workers they work in very close conditions. They work in damp, cold environments. They were required to go to work. The meatpacking industry was exempt from a lot of the, um, the shutdown measures that were introduced to combat COVID. They were also exempt from requiring, uh, from providing um, protection, personal protective equipment for their workers. They were exempt from changing working conditions in such a way as to make it um, less likely that workers would get infected. And there was also very little uh, requirement for notifying workers when there was an outbreak for um uh, for example, for, for providing uh, testing, even for making it easy for workers to get tested. Another example is in Singapore, construction workers um, were deemed essential workers and so they were required to keep working. Um, we recall also in Melbourne the uh, 3,000 residents of the public housing towers that were locked down at the start of the second wave. Um, you know, many of them were from immigrant, non-English speaking backgrounds. They were afforded none of the same privileges that were given to residents in other areas of Melbourne in terms of advance warning of a lockdown, in terms of support during lockdown. And really, a lot of the support that was given to them was firstly not culturally appropriate. Um, they were not given the information that they needed. Um, it, it was a very badly handled situation that once again disproportionately impacted a section of society that's already marginalised. And all of this, what all of this, um, where this shows up is when you look at the infection rates and the mortality data uh, across the world, I mean, particularly in the Western world, what you see is a disproportionately high effect uh, in terms of infection rates and mortality rates amongst people of colour, amongst uh, those who are economically disadvantaged um, and the marginalised members of society. And that shows up even when you account for all other potential, you know, comorbidities, all of these things. And there was one line that, that um, one of the people I interviewed said, she said, it doesn't matter if you've got diabetes, it doesn't matter if you're obese, if you don't have a mask, you don't have a mask. And so, you know, for all of these arguments that, oh, yes, these, you know, that these groups in society have higher rates of these comorbidities that are associated with greater mortality, that ignores the fact that these groups in society were also disproportionately exposed to COVID because of the nature of work that they were required to do and because the lack of protection that was afforded to them. And on top of that, we also know that in, in these groups of people, they weren't just overexposed to the virus in some ways and had to work where others got the privilege of staying indoors and away from others. But they also, you know, there's the term that it's actually very expensive to be poor. And at the start of the pandemic, while others were stockpiling, you know, basic food and medication, these people 
probably didn't have the ability to do that either, which put them at more risk. Absolutely. I mean, you know, these are the cracks. These are the fault lines in our supposedly civilised societies, you know, which is the lie that this civilization is built on. I know this is getting very kind of, (laughs) you know, tub thumpy, but the lie is equality. You know, and, and really the pandemic has exposed very starkly those inequalities, but also how those inequalities kill. Um, and this is where, you know, we, we go back to Engels' idea of social murder, you know, which is that these groups are forced to live in these conditions. You know, it's made very difficult for them to get out of these conditions because of lack of access to education or to good education, because of lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to affordable housing, um, you know, lack of access even just to uh, you know, um, personal protective equipment, uh, you know, this is not something that exists by choice or by, by some, because of some biological flaw, that this is a societally imposed um, disadvantage. And, you know, it never has it been laid sort of clear as much as during this pandemic. And, I mean, you know, the Engels, I I obviously can't take credit for this idea of labelling this social murder, and that actually came from two professors of criminology in the UK, and they um, wrote a letter to The Guardian about midway through last year. Um, And this is Joe Sim and Steve Toombs. And they argued that, you know, a significant number of the deaths from COVID-19 in the UK were avoidable and they were directly the result of large sections of the population being forced to live in conditions that were contributing to their premature deaths from this disease. And, I mean, these two professors, you know, one of them is an expert on deaths in custody. Um, The other was involved with um, a number of um, issues, but, for example, the Grenfell Tower in the UK. And so, you know, they have... a lot of um, expertise and interest in in these fault lines and the effects that these kind of you know these inequalities have on health. And so they were the ones who raised this concept of social murder. And interestingly, it then got taken up by um, uh, an editor of the British Medical Journal, who then wrote an editorial about this and and very much echoed those same sentiments and accusing Boris Johnson and other governments around the world of social murder in in their kind of willful neglect of um, the health and, um, I guess, equality in, uh, of these sections of the population and and continuing to do so during a pandemic as well. And so a lot of doctors and healthcare workers would be quite familiar with the social determinants of health and, you know, the idea that everything about your economic situation, your social situation, it can directly or indirectly limit your health access or your life expectancy among certain groups of people. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the Marmont report, what was found in that and whether we've actually come any further in solving some of these major inequalities. Yeah, so the the Marmot um, report, I think it was the Marmot Review, was uh, published in the UK in 2010 by um, an epidemiologist and public health expert, Professor Sir Michael Marmot. Um, And he was looking at health inequalities in the UK. And and really his point was, and what he found, was that socioeconomic 
position and health are fundamentally linked. So the more socioeconomically favoured you are, um, then the better your health. And this is so clearly illustrated by the difference in uh, in disability-free life expectancy between those of highest income and those of lowest income. So, for example, um, those of high income live on average six years longer than those of low income, uh, and their disability-free life expectancy is around 13 years longer. And, and it's interesting. I mean, he wrote this back in 2010, and if anything, since then, things have got worse and not better. And I mean, Australia, uh, I guess one of our equivalents is the Closing the Gap report, which highlighted the uh, health, in well, not just health, but health was one of the aspects, health inequalities that exist between um, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians. Again, very little has been achieved in the, I think that would probably be around 10 years since that was published as well. Um, very little has, has been fixed about those situations. Um, and so, you, you know, um, I spoke to a, uh, a guy uh, who's, um, I guess, particularly interested in this area, Kumanan uh, Rasanathan. So he's um, head of equity and health at the World Health Organization and a public health physician. And so he actually did a sort of a 10-year look back on the, at the 10-year anniversary of the Marmot Review. And he said, you know, this social injustice is still killing on a grand scale. And so when the pandemic struck, you know, he said, Yes, on one kind of level, he knew that it was going to highlight these inequalities, but he said and if, even people who have worked in this area their entire lives were shocked at how how massive the impact was of, of the pandemic on these health inequalities or how these health inequalities rather magnified um, and exacerbated these health inequalities. Uh, you know, and that was shocking even to someone who spent their life working in this area. So, Bianca... Who can be held to account? Obviously, we're all accountable, as you were saying, through our supply chains and where we buy. But I mean, in a pandemic, we also know that there were so many um, PPE items being manufactured overseas, probably not in great circumstances all the time. You know, we're relying on HEPA filters and everything that we know is often manufactured offshore. So do we need to put more pressure on governments or how do how do we become more accountable? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, um, you know, it does go all the way to the top because these decisions, these public health decisions about, um, you know, contact tracing requirements or essential workers, those were made by the people at the top. Those were made in governments. And interestingly, um, there's something like a million uh, medical professionals in Brazil, along with a very large number of uh, social and union organisations in that country, have actually asked the International Criminal Court to investigate uh, Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro um, for potential crimes against humanity because of the way he's mishandled the pandemic. Now, somewhat sadly, he's unlikely to be convicted because, um, uh, you know, international law International governments is really about what states do rather than what individuals do. And also the law is not really going to punish someone for failing to kind of look after the public health of their population, you know, and also it's it's a way of trying to kind of, I guess, send a message to others. And the law doesn't necessarily do that, although one might argue <laughs> in this case it should. Where it does get interesting as well is when you start looking at the private sector's responsibility. And this is somewhere where the law is actually taking action. So there are already class actions against aged care providers in Australia. So if, I think, I believe there's one against Anglicare, uh, which um, operated Newmarch House, was obviously was associated with a major outbreak. Um, I think uh, Heritage Care as well is facing lawsuits 
Um, in the US, uh, Walmart is being sued by an employee who died or the family of an employee who died of COVID um, because of their failure to provide PPE. Similarly, McDonald's, um, a cruise company is being sued. So there are there is litigation taking place. But again, you know, these the litigants are going to be people in very difficult, precarious financial situations. It's going to be very difficult for them to bring a lawsuit against their employer. But also it's kind of too late. You know, people have died. These families have lost loved ones and or have suffered, you know, massive health consequences because of that. So, you know, what effect that has in the future, I don't know. But ultimately, you know, companies respond to regulation and regulation is set by the government. Um, and none of these things are what individuals can change. It's up to it's up to governments to change these laws. And so I think really the place where the you know governments are going to be held to account, I really, really, really hope will be held to account is the ballot box. There is something somewhat unpredictable in the actual virus and how it spreads and we can do a lot better to protect individuals. But one thing that is definitely in our grasp right now and in government's power around the world is the equality in the vaccine rollout. What do we have to do better to make sure that while we haven't done our best through the pandemic, we actually can do right by people around the world through equity and vaccine management. Yeah, look, this is, I mean, the vaccine inequality is social murder at a global scale because, again, it's low to middle-income countries, it's disproportionately countries that are, you know, predominantly uh, not white um, who are missing out on vaccines and rich countries, Western countries, are hoarding vaccines, although I find it so utterly perplexing that Australia is supposedly hoarding vaccines and yet none of us seem to be able to get one. I don't really know what's going on there. But um, it's, you know, this is the same problem writ large and it's that idea that those who can, those who have the power, those who have the money are the ones who are getting um, getting the help, getting the vaccines, getting the treatment system. Some of this conversation comes back to patents and the patent system, which, um, you know, obviously greatly benefits um, pharmaceutical industries. And yes, there's an argument that they require, uh, you know, they need to make a profit and that's understandable. But I think in a case of a global pandemic, that's, you know, it is putting profits before survival of not just, you know, individuals, but, you know, we cannot open up the world until people are vaccinated. It's, it would be like, you know, easing lockdown when you've still got an outbreak raging in a suburb. It just doesn't work that way. You have to, every, either everybody is protected or nobody is. So, you know, the idea that, um, you know, we, wealthy countries can hoard vaccines and vaccinate their own citizens and then sit back and say, well, I'm all right, Jack, that doesn't work because not only does it mean as soon as you open borders again, the, the virus will find its way back, but as long as it continues to circulate and to rage in some cases in these area, these countries where vaccination is, um, vaccines aren't as available, 
then you're, there's the risk of variants emerging and those variants may well be variants that are um, that can actually work their way around the vaccine. And, you know, we've seen that in India, we've seen that in Brazil, um, we've seen that in Africa, we're seeing it now um, I think there was a possible new variant that was uh, discovered in Vietnam or seemed to be emerging um, in Southeast Asia. And so it's such a self-defeating and and kind of stupid thing to do to hoggle the vaccines and sit back and think that we're safe. Bianca, thank you so much for sharing. I could talk about this for much longer, but I think you've given us a lot to think about and we can all do a lot better. Absolutely. I know it's a bit of a tub-thumping exercise, but, you know, I do feel if we don't learn from these things, we are just going to repeat these same mistakes again and again and again, and that would just be so tragic for such a smart species to be so ridiculously stupid that we we keep making this same mistake. It would be nice to think we can evolve. You can listen to more episodes of The Tea Room and subscribe to the show by searching for The Tea Room Medical Republic in your favourite podcast player. Catch you next time.